0: This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Cheryl Batchelder turned a failure at KFC into triumph as CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen
1: life has a way of setting you straight and saying you know don't get such a puffed up sense of who you are Mm -hmm. you're just one person you had one failure if you learn from it get back up on your feet like every other athlete you can probably do another one better get over yourself
0: Cheryl Batchelder and the story of Popeyes coming up next
2: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R and D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude three model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude three Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today.
0: Here's one of the most important things I've come to believe about success— It's boring. Okay, maybe that's a bit too harsh, but what's really interesting is failure. Because failure is where we learn our most important and profound lessons. Failure is what allows us to understand how meaningful success can be. And in my experience, the most generous leaders I've interviewed are the ones who can talk about their failures because they know that it's the best way to share any wisdom they might have. And so by now, you might have guessed that failure is going to be a big part of this episode. Because even though Cheryl Batchelder is one of the most successful CEOs in recent decades, she's much more interested in talking about the moments when she stumbled. Cheryl helped turn Popeye's chicken into one of the biggest success stories of the past decade, 10 straight years of growth. But she was only able to do that because of a previous failure— at KFC, a failure that almost led her to leave the workforce entirely. Cheryl grew up mainly overseas. Her dad worked for a semiconductor company. And as a young girl, she showed a lot of promise as a pianist. Her intention was to devote her life to music. So when it came time for college, Cheryl decided to study at the world-renowned music school at Indiana University. At the end of your sophomore year, you had to perform a
1: jury performance for mm. I remembered as being six or seven piano professionals, and they were to evaluate your work and I had never worked harder than I worked those two years to improve my technique. So I was very deeply invested in doing well in that jury performance. And my teacher, my piano teacher, was very encouraging to me. He felt like I had made a step change in my performance capability. He was very pleased. But there was a critical Russian pianist woman on that jury who didn't agree with him. (laughs) And uh, she stood up and had a fit in the middle of my jury and uh, called my playing I don't know what she said in my mind it was all about unacceptable and wow. uh, not worthy of continuing and um and she crushed me and I walked out of the music school that day and I never walked back in <sighs> I spent the summer reflecting on a better path for me um And my idea was to drop out of college, and uh, that didn't suit my parents. And so (laughs) they said, you will find another idea, and you will stay in college. So thankfully, they did uh, impress upon me the importance of sticking with college. And so Indiana University has two well-known global schools. One of them is music, and the other is the Kelly School of Business. So I spent the summer in Hong Kong with my family looking at what my father was doing, and I think that's where I began to understand the opportunity for influence that leadership Hmm. is. And I came back and uh, went to a joint degree program, bachelor's and MBA together. I look back on it and say, yeah, that was an odd pivot, but it is a reminder, and I would use it this way if I were telling that story to leaders today, is... Be very careful with your words when speaking to young, developing leaders because you have no idea what your words might cause. And I'm sure to this day, that woman doesn't even know I exist. And she didn't know I existed on that day.
0: So (laughs) important to remember that lesson. It's such an important lesson. And I think about this all the time because I think anyone listening has had that experience where somebody said something that... Um, that was just a, a, a bit of encouragement that gave them the boost that they needed at a tough time or or the opposite. But in some ways, like I think about, you know, people who, in my life who discouraged me from doing things that I really w- thought I wanted to do but set me off on a different path, which to today I do this. This is what I do in part because of those people. That teacher, that Russian pianist was harsh and cruel and, and certainly didn't handle it the right way. But man, I mean... She forced you to go in a different direction that would end up pushing you to a completely on a completely different journey that proved to be the right journey for you. Well, I now have
1: said many times, success doesn't teach you much, but a good trial and tribulation teaches you a whole bunch of lessons. hundred percent. hundred percent. That has just been repeated over and over in my life where I may have at the moment resented the trial and tribulation, but it has forged better competence and character in me as a leader. And yeah. I have to be grateful for that, for in fact, I would not have achieved what I did in my career had I not been forged by
0: some difficult times. All right. So fresh with a a, a master's degree in business administration from Indiana University, You go to Procter and Gamble, uh, which is a a huge multinational, one of the biggest advertisers in the world. They make tons and tons of products. Did you move to Cincinnati? I did. That was
1: my first job straight out of college. Um, I didn't sign up for an interview with Procter and Gamble. They saw that I was a leader on campus and called me up. Went to Cincinnati in brand management. I believe my first brand was Mister Clean, followed by a couple of brands that aren't around anymore. But Procter & Gamble was and is even today one of the best teaching grounds uh, to <laughs> learn business strategy for iconic brands. And so I always have viewed that as one of the most important stepping off points
0: in my skill set looking back. You, you stayed at Procter & Gamble for a while, worked at Gillette, which is a, owned by Procter & Gamble. Um, and then I guess... Eventually, you went on to Nabisco, which is a different uh, entirely different company. Um, how did that um did they also recruit you?
1: Um, Yes, combination of career and life, though, because I decided while at Procter & Gamble, I met my husband, Chris,
0: and we married. And he was also at Procter & Gamble. He was working
1: there. He was also there. But then he went back to business school at Harvard Business School, and I went to Gillette. And then we both, it was, uh, remember the word dink, dual income, no Mm -hmm. kids? Yeah, Uh, yeah, We we were dinks, so we thought all dinks lived in New York City. Uh So we went there, and that's where uh, he went into economic research and I went to Nabisco Brands. So I always want to remind people that careers develop around both life
0: and work and to be very open to that. So you end up in New York because he graduates Harvard Business School and and that's the place to go and Nabisco was. And I think still is based in New Jersey. So not too far. They were. Yep. And they had a portfolio
1: of fabulous brands, you know, all the cookies and crackers, sure. you know, plus they had planters, nuts, they had lifesavers, candy and carefree gum. They had all kinds of fun food products. And I really was into brands and product innovation. Those were very rich years, uh, stayed about nine years there. It was where my first general management job was and my
0: first opportunity to do real breakthrough new product launches that stood the test of time. One of the brands I think you, you were kind of in charge of launching was the uh, Planters Honey Roasted Peanuts, right? Is it right?
1: Yes. Honey Roasted Peanuts was uh, one of
0: the first innovations in nuts in a very, very long time. I mean, Honey Roasted Peanuts, it just seems like a no-brainer. It they, 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 they tastes great. I can't believe it took until, what, the 80s to, to, for, somebody, right? for somebody to come up with that?
1: The specific origin of that idea was in a small Southeastern competitor that had uh, kind of a candied coating uh, on right. a nut. Right, And so I guess... The the key to all product innovation is to start with the marketplace and start with the customer. Hmm. And in that case, you know, a scan of all the innovative, smaller nut companies that were largely in the South at that point in time, and they were experimenting with flavor profiles and techniques that we had not tried. We had scale, but we didn't necessarily have the experimentation going on. That's a strategy all large companies can use, is to look to smaller, faster-moving and be fast followers and probably the one that I, the second one i'm most passionate about from that time frame is gummy
0: savers because oh yeah i remember those yeah sure they're still around
1: they're very much around it created a whole new way to think about lifesavers candy and was the first really fresh tasting gummy product made in the usa before that they were hard to chew bears that usually came from germany yeah I think most of us trained as MBAs think we're supposed to come up with all the (laughs) brilliant new ideas and launch our ideas, you know. But in fact, the really big ideas come from your customers' mouths. And so they don't say, the customer usually can't say, well, I think you should launch gummy savers. But they can say, you know, of all the candies, I really don't like it when those bears get stuck on my teeth. Hmm. And, and you know, and if you're listening carefully to that, you can say, listen, there's something they like about a, a more tender chew product, but it can't be stale and the flavors have to be good. Oh, lifesavers has really good flavors. I wonder if we could make a more gel-based chewy product. So insights that come straight out of the customer's observations instead of our own heads are far more likely to yield a meaningful business opportunity.
0: Hmm. All right. So you are at Nabisco working and and successfully launched two iconic products. You've got this successful career. Um, You're probably on the fast track to bigger leadership posts. And 92, you decide to kind of step out for a while um, to to focus your time on on your kids and raising your kids, right? We had young children. I believe our kids
1: at that point were about maybe two and seven. My husband had aging parents with health issues in Michigan, and I was kind of fed up with the leadership of Nabisco at that point. It was going through a lot of change, and it, that confluence event said, you know, I think we can reevaluate this whole thing and try something different. So that's what we did. We picked up our kids. <laughs> My husband called it uh, An early midlife Mm -hmm. crisis and he always says and I don't recommend you both quit your job on the same (laughs) day which is what we did we gave up all the stability Uh, we were actually living near my family at the time so we moved away from my family to his gave up our jobs and started fresh
0: Um, when you when you left Nabisco in 92 did you think that it was gonna be a pause and you would go back to work or were you not sure I never thought
1: those decisions were either or. Hmm. I thought they were at a point in time. And I really encourage young families to think about it this way. Life and work is one whole equation. It is difficult to keep it all sorted out and working well. And so to not be so linear in your thinking that I always must work or I always must stay home or there's one answer for the next 10 years, I, I just always thought that was overblown thinking. Mm. We had more of a two or three year view of our life and family. Yeah. That's about the time frame you can even picture, right? Because right. you right. don't know what the next stage looks like, really. Certainly don't, know. And so what do our kids need now? What are our careers? Where are they at? What are the implications? But I took two major breaks in my 40-year career, and they did not topple over my
0: career. No, in fact, to the contrary.
1: I would suggest that during those breaks, uh, there was some time of reflection, looking back and looking forward, a chance to catch your breath, a chance to make sure you feel right about your family decisions and that everyone in your family is prospering, not just you know, one or two of you, I think those are healthy. Mm. I think they're healthy things. I think it helps you live a life with fewer regrets if you give yourself those breathing opportunities.
0: Sure. Hmm. Hey, I, w- I want to ask you about, about dominoes, uh, because you take this break from, I think, from around 92 to 95, and I mean, you were doing some con- consulting work on the side. Uh, but mainly you were at home. And and I guess Tom Monahan, the founder of Domino's Pizza, uh, which is based in Michigan where you were living at that point, I guess he offers you a job to become uh, a senior vice president for marketing and product development. How does that – how does it even come to you? How, how does – what's the story? How, do, how does he find out about you?
1: Well, it was quite serendipity. I had a mentor in New York named Laurel Cutler who was the vice chair of an ad agency – and uh, she had really developed me as a strategic advertiser. I I really <laughs> adored her, and she was an advisor to Tom Monahan. He had he was a private company, but he had a board of advisors, and she was on it. So we're living in Michigan. I call up Laurel and I said, "I understand Tom Monahan needs a marketer. I would like for you to put." you know, my credentials in front of him. And she said, oh, honey, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, Laurel, it's a great brand. It's right next to where I live. And it appears to have a real turnaround brand opportunity. Hmm. And she goes, well, of course, I'll call him right now. And so there's only like two examples in my whole career of that kind of mentor moment. And she picked up the phone and said, Tom, you need to call Cheryl and you need to call her right away. Wow. And so I think we had lunch the following, Tom Monaghan and I had lunch the following Friday. At that lunch, he wrote the offer on a napkin. He's quite famous for this. He's done it with baseball players and executives both. He wrote it on a napkin and he asked for an immediate answer. And I said, well, Tom, I'm honored to have this opportunity. I'd be happy to get back to you on Monday. He said, no, that's not how it works. (laughs) The offer is now. And I said, well, then forgive me, but I need to step out in the parking lot for a moment. (laughs) And I stepped out in the parking lot and I called my dad. Um, My dad was uh, a huge mentor in my life and always my sounding board on decisions. And I said, so, dad, this is really unusual. I've never been pushed to negotiate this way on a napkin over lunch. I said, give me some insight. And he walked me through a few questions. And uh, he said, if you have the answers to those questions, feel free to answer them on the spot. And I went back in and
0: took the job. Wow. So you become um senior person in marketing and product development. At the time, if I'm, I'm right... Domino's was, uh, was in trouble, right? I mean, the, the franchisees had filed a lawsuit against the company. You know, They were losing market share. There were some serious competitors coming into that space, Papa John's, et cetera. To just kind of lay out what was, what was going on at Domino's when you joined.
1: Well, you captured most of it. I think the Saturday after I joined, the franchisees filed a class action lawsuit against the company. So that was a big surprise. And they were claiming
0: that like the company was profiting off the dough and all the the supplies That's that they right. were se- sending to the... It was a yeah.
1: supply chain question, which frankly, I was pretty oblivious to even how that worked. This was my first foray right. into the restaurant right. business. But I was real clear that they were in an adversarial relationship with the people who <laughs> delivered pizzas to their customers. And so it was not lost on me how serious a relationship issue that was. On the brand side, the brand reputation was in a rough spot. It was kind of viewed as the pizza I ate in college, but I no longer need to eat because I've grown up and I can afford better things. Yeah, right. right and right. I remember it as the pizza you order after you get drunk. And so it just had a lot of, you know, old reputational stuff attached to it. And um Those two factors were the drivers of the business plan that I brought together with a great team of people for that brand. And I worked on rebuilding franchise relationships, which has become a hallmark of my career. I treasure the franchise owner who has invested both real capital and sweat equity into the business. And I believe they deserve great things from their franchisor, great partnership. And so I went ahead and created an advisory board of franchisees that weren't in the lawsuit, but that were highly respected and capable people. And we started, Started Forging an aligned approach to growing the top line of the business and we worked side by side at coming up with a a turnaround plan for that
0: company. At the time, I mean, it it sounds like it it sounds like there was there was nowhere to go except up, right? Because Domino's is not at a great in the great spot. So were you focusing on trying to I mean, how were you able to kind of start to reframe the story around Domino's? What was the what was the playbook?
1: Domino's had some of the key attributes that I look for in an opportunity brand. It had meaningful history and capability that wasn't being fully expressed in a relevant and contemporary way. They were still delivering very hot, on-time pizzas better than anybody in the category. 30 minutes
0: or less, right? Yes, they just
1: couldn't talk about it anymore because there had been lawsuits in that. So, but they still had an operational competency that was a wow factor competitively. They had incredible franchise owners at that time. They, most of them only owned one store. They were physically in the store taking care of customers. So Hmm. when you got aligned with them, you could really make an impact on the customer, And they were willing and able to make small investments in transformation. Probably the biggest investment we made during my tenure there was in the heat wave bag, which was the first technology to keep the pizza oven temperature hot all the way to your door. Hmm. And those franchisees were actually more excited about it than the management team of Domino's, which I argued with for weeks, trying to get them excited about that as a competitive advantage, but the franchisees got it. And they were the ones that put the money down and made it
0: happen. Wow. All right. So you spend about five years at Domino's and you get, uh, I guess, headhunted by Yum Foods, which owns KFC to become the president of KFC. First of all, was that just like, I mean, that was from what i've read about you at the time like you were quoted saying it's just a dream opportunity you know to, to be the president of a big company like that were you just like over the moon when they approached you
1: um you know as i look back on it i think i was overly over the moon about it <laughs> i wish i'd been a little wiser then uh but that's a, that's part of the career too i i was frustrated at domino's because the company had been sold and The new owners probably didn't see me as the next CEO, and Hmm. they had kind of another person in mind, which is fine, but I was frustrated.
0: And just to be clear, I guess this is an important point too, and you know this, there are very, very few women running Fortune 500 companies in America. You clearly, did you clearly think of yourself as a future CEO of Domino's? Is Is that how you thought of your trajectory? Well, I'm
1: always clear about this point. I didn't have a lifetime goal or ambition to be a CEO ever. But what I always did was looked at the next job in line. And I sought to do my job well and garner the skills and preparation of my job so that I could be eligible to be considered for the next job. I was very much about just one job at a time. And so by that time, yes, I felt like I had been preparing and wanted to be considered for that opportunity. So when Young Brands called directly, there's no question I was flattered.
2: Hmm. There's
1: no question I went, gosh, this is like the opportunity of a lifetime. The company was much more famous than Domino's. They were known for developing great leaders and having this really powerful culture that they talked about all the time. And of course, they flew the jet in to take me down for the interview. I mean, there were lots of levels of it. And in my young, you know, Less wise self. What I missed about it, and I say this very specifically to women you don't want to be romantic about your next opportunity. You want to be eyes wide open and rigorously prepared and doing it for the right reasons. And so our family, you know, that was probably quite a disruptive move for our family. Because you moved to Louisville. We moved to Louisville right. with a freshman in high school and not very happy about it. And <laughs> my husband had to give up his job. I mean, it was a very abrupt turn. Yeah. And then I get to the job and it the company was not a great fit
0: for me and it didn't work out. I mean, a couple of things that I think are important to point out. You're hired. And I think very soon after you were hired, you were diagnosed with cancer and you continued to work. I mean, just incredible ha- First of all, how long were you were you undergoing treatment?
1: Um, let's see. I was diagnosed with breast cancer, maybe fourteen months into the job. So mm. yes, you know, I just barely had my feet on the ground in that job when wow. I got a very surprising diagnosis. I didn't know how to go about treatment other than to do what I was told. Right? You know, um, I think anyone faced with cancer, the first thing you go is, okay, I, I, this is uncharted waters. So. I jumped into treatment like it was my that's what I needed to do and I went to University of Louisville at their first appointment in the morning and then I drove to work and I worked all day and I came home and had dinner with my family wow. and my body handled it well so I was blessed that my reaction to it was not too onerous yeah but I'll tell you, I didn't allow enough time for the processing of all the emotions of being a mom with two, at that time, two young daughters mm. at risk of losing my life very unexpectedly. And, and that's a lot to process. So to your point, here I am trying to do a very big job yeah. to be kind of a poster for all working women and at the same time trying to battle mm. um, breast cancer diagnosis and it it was too much Um, you know I really believe you should fess up and be honest about when you have been overwhelmed in your career and life and that was too much to try to take on
0: all at once what would you have done differently do you think you would have stepped down or taken time off
1: You know, it wasn't my nature to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think you can go, you can't revise history. My nature was to, I wanted to demonstrate to my children that I was doing everything I could and I was optimistic. I wanted them to see a functioning positive attitude mother. I don't regret that part. My daughter was interviewed once and said, you know, oh, what did you think when your mother got diagnosed with breast cancer? And she said, to be honest, I was worried about what dress I was going to wear to prom. And so I I do think I protected my children from, you know, becoming depressed or fearful or all of those things. So I don't entirely regret that. But I do know that I was pretty stretched thin. Yeah. Uh, trying to deal with all those things. And it did impact, you know, how great of a leader could I be?
0: How could, you know, there's a limit to us as human beings. There, There is. No, I agree. But I want to go back to KFC and I wonder why, what happened there? I mean, you, you were super talented. You did all this stuff at Nabisco and Domino's and obviously super competent and good as a branding and marketing person. What was it about KFC? Were you just did you just not kind of click with the culture there? Like because you were eventually they 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 fired you, um, but but why? What do you think happened?
1: Well, the short answer is I, I had fourteen months of great results and followed by like fourteen months of terrible right. results, and so results are results. Sure. And as CEOs and presidents were measured by results, so I accept complete accountability for that what happened in the broader diagnosis is i have a, a a much more long view strategic view of business i'm probably not the best short term kind of person because i always think of the long view implications mm. so uh, an example at kfc is kfc was very much about the hype of Celebrity advertising every quarter and really being on trend, and I could have cared less about celebrity advertising i I wanted to know what the essence of the brand was that would be iconic and last for years to come yes i 'm far more to reach into the annals of history and the recipe and yeah, what the sure. brand could be and stand for that 's my strategic wiring. The other thing I am is i 'm a highly relational leader. And I valued the franchisees more than the other executives did. And I wanted to go to market aligned with them. I didn't want to hammer them with my strategies and hope they would follow. And it's something I counsel leaders on all the time is figure out what you are wired to do. For me, that strategy and relational leadership and do that. Because trying to be something you're not is not a path to success. You can't make that work.
2: If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com/slash Claude today. When you talk about relational leadership, can you expand on that? What what
0: what what, what did that mean for you?
1: Well. I, I I like to say, I must know you to grow you. I must know you to put you in the right job. Mm. I must know you to collaborate with you. I must know you to negotiate a contract with you. I don't know how to do business without investing in knowing the people that I work with. I'll never forget one of the franchisees said to me one time, I think you actually like me like like a friend. <laughs> and I said, well, that's weird. I do. <laughs> And I think that's how business is supposed to be. I don't think it's supposed to be hollow, empty, yeah. absent relationship. So I just by nature was designed to invest more time knowing people. Frankly, in corporate world, a lot of people think t- that's weird. I would coach my leaders to spend 30% of their week in one-on-ones with their direct reports. And they would scream that that was not technically possible. That was too much time. And then I would say, well, would you like me to spend less time with you? (laughs) And they would say, oh, no, not really. No, in fact, I think I need more of your time. And I said, well, I think that's how other people think about you. Followers want their leaders to give them attention, understanding, knowing time. And I've come to understand that's what most people Mm. want.
0: They want a leader that invests in them and cares about them. When you lost your job at... KFC. Um, How did you deal with that personally, emotionally? Was it, um, I don't know, was it, did you feel like like you failed?
1: Oh, I certainly felt like a failure. It uh, really hit my confidence hard. Hmm. You know, I thought, well, maybe I was a really great marketing leader, but I'm not cut out for this thing called general management or CEO. Maybe I don't know enough finance. Maybe I don't know Mm -hmm. enough about Wall Street. I did all that. But I also just got my wits together The the Monday after I got fired from KFC, my daughter's best friend was killed in a car accident. Oh, wow. And it was a gut-wrenching, horrible day, week, month that followed. Mm. But I'll tell you what, uh, God got my attention and my perspective was restored because I had had like a bad day, but I did not lose a loved one and I did not suffer the humongous loss that those parents suffered. And so, you know, life has a way of setting you straight and saying, you know, don't get such a puffed up sense of who you are. Mm -hmm. You're just one person, you had one failure. If you learn from it, get back up on your feet like every other athlete, you can probably do another one better. And um, it, humbling is the word I'm, I'm
0: seeking, right, is just get over yourself. How, how long did it take you to get to that? We hear a lot of stories about people say, you know, I just said get over yourself. But let, let's be honest. It's a long process. It takes time. Oh, yeah. It's not fast. But, yeah. It's not because fast. Because it was probably a period of time where you were angry and frustrated and felt badly treated. Like you went through the stages of grief when, when, when you lost that job. I
1: definitely went through stages of grief during that quiet spell coming out of KFC. And the the learning I would share from that is be careful not to spend too long in the anger victim category. Hmm. I went to others that I deeply respected who said, hey, listen, lots of people are going to give you another chance. I didn't believe that right Hmm. away, but it was true. Frank Bellotti was the chairman of the board at Popeyes. And one day he calls me and he says, you know, I've always wanted to know you better. I was always impressed with you back there at KFC. And now that you're a couple years out and could work for a competitor, I I wonder, would you serve on our board? Hmm. And uh, I was so honored by that. And it really, I really did think. Well, maybe board service is the way yeah. I'll be giving back. You know, this will be my next contribution, and I very got very excited about that. Yeah. And I was on two or three boards after that, and thought that would be my primary contribution. And then one day, the CEO of Popeyes quits, and Frank looks over at me and he goes, "Would you leave the board <laughs> meeting for a moment? We want to talk about you." You know, um, I wow. didn't even know what he meant, but when I came back in the room they asked me if I would consider the job. So you, you just never know how that's all going to sort out.
0: I wonder in that time period between um, KFC and Popeye's, because it was about four years where you did some board work and, and also did a lot of thinking. And I read that that at the time you developed, you started to kind of think about your own leadership philosophy. What, what Who are you as a leader? And you started to reflect on how you functioned as a leader. Um, and I imagine you you kind of, interrogated your own leadership skills and philosophy and tried to kind of unpack it to see if you could improve it or make it better?
1: Well, absolutely. I I think I was at risk of trying to be the leader everybody else told me to be early hmm. in my career. And so I was always trying to emulate great leaders. And I hadn't taken the time to articulate my own philosophy of leadership that I wanted to govern my leadership. And I finally said, you know, in this time that I have, I'm going to start articulating what I really believe to be true about leadership. And in the end, what resonated with me was this idea of servant leadership. I had always been an avid reader. I had read a lot about the essays of uh, Robert Greenleaf, who was kind of the first business person to write about servant leadership. Servant leadership was largely considered kind of what nonprofit people do who run, you know, homeless shelters or food banks. It was called nice guy leadership, soft leadership skills, and it was honestly not taken seriously at all in the kind of public sector arena like public companies. And I said, you know, we've got this all wrong. Uh, It is a powerful way to create an environment where people thrive because servant leadership is about considering others more significant than yourself. So if you think about that from a leadership standpoint, I'm gonna focus on making these franchisee owners successful, not just myself. So I brought in the idea of serving others for the sake of creating a workplace where they would thrive and prosper which was very performance oriented. It was nothing, but it was not soft. It was very much about measured performance results. And that led eventually to this thesis I call Dare to Serve Leadership, how to drive superior results by serving others. But I didn't have that thesis till that time of reflection where I Hmm. pulled together everything I'd observed and known and said, I will now start articulating my worldview about leadership and it will govern my actions as a leader.
0: And I'm no longer subject to other people's models. I'm curious because this idea of servant leadership you developed um, in that sort of interregnum between your time at KFC and when you started up Popeyes. And obviously you drew a lot of lessons from your time at KFC. And one of the lessons it sounds like you kind of drew from that time was that you can't please everybody. And that's not your job as a leader, that you have to actually – make decisions that are tough and that may not get buy-in from everyone all the time, but that's why you were hired to do the job. Am I am I right about that? Well, I think there's two sides of that nickel. One is
1: I think thinking of others does not lessen the way I think of myself. When I teach servant leadership, I tell people the definition is not be a doormat or have no confidence. The definition is simply push your decisions through a filter of others before you filter them for yourself. And so the flip side of the coin though is leaders today worry far too much about what others think and say about them and far too little about being true to the belief system that they bring to leadership. So I would tell you when I became confident in my leadership philosophy, which is governed by the words courage, humility, purpose, and principles, I stopped worrying so much about other people's opinions
0: of my leadership or my decisions. Hmm. So this, I mean, this is the philosophy and this is the, the leadership philosophy that you would take with you to Popeyes. Um, and at this point, you're on the board and then you are asked to become the CEO I guess, in 2007. And if I understand it correctly, um, when you agreed to become the CEO of Popeyes, they had like, like four CEOs in the previous seven years, which is uh, not, not a great record. Um, I mean, the, the situation there is arguably presumably even less attractive in some ways than the KFC job that you took six years earlier. Well, it was a very difficult time. They, too, uh, were
1: suffering a a distressed relationship with the franchise owners because along with those four CEOs had been seven years of declining customer counts coming to the restaurants and Mm. declining profitability at the restaurants. And the franchisees were not happy and they were literally barging in to board meetings to express their dissatisfaction with the leadership. So, um, yeah, it was it was a messy time. I now call this these are leaders that like to walk into burning buildings um, because I found it exciting. Yeah. I really did find it exciting in an odd sort of way to say, "Wow, there's lots of complexity here," and I do think brave leaders have that kind of worldview. They say, you know, problems are my opportunities. And so Mm. I looked around at all that and said, wow, this is fascinating. And I saw in Popeyes actually the Makings of a beautiful brand because Popeyes had been launched out of this incredible food history called the state of Louisiana that's rich with recipes and culinary inspiration that comes from kind of a melting pot of cultures that's called New Orleans. And so I just, I literally started reading Louisiana cookbooks immediately to say, where's the insight and the idea Mm -hmm. that we could anchor this brand? So I saw a brand opportunity. And everything else was just kind of off kilter and needed mm-hmm. to be brought back to kilter, the
0: franchise relationships, the cost structure, et cetera. So yeah. I ran into the burning building. So you, one of the first things you did was you went on a listening tour. You went to visit a bunch of cities and talk to franchise owners um, and and just get a survey, like to do a survey of, of what was on their minds. And why were they so angry? What did, they, what did you learn from, from doing that? But you have to remember; these are the
1: people that borrowed the money to build the buildings, hired the people, trained them, and were serving our guests every day. And they hadn't seen top line or bottom line growth in the business in years. Hmm. And those that were building new restaurants were getting zero cash on cash returns. It was
0: pretty desperate financial circumstances. What was it? Was there just a general downturn in, in fast food, or was it a Popeye specific challenge?
1: Um, No, it was Popeye specific. We had not done our job of building this great brand. Hmm. There was just lots of opportunity to tell the story of Popeye's in a fresh way. That became the story of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. We renamed the entire company. The second pillar was we were a fast food restaurant with the slowest drive-through times in the industry. We ranked uh, 98 out of 100. God. Now that's just brain dead. You can't be called <laughs> quick service restaurant right. and have terrible drive-throughs. So we decided to fix our drive-throughs. Third thing is we weren't making any money at the store level. Well, that's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, we found. $45 million in the supply chain that... Just wasteful f-
0: just wasteful spending or...
1: Yeah, uh, just lack of good practice in yeah. how we sourced and bid things out. Um, just lots of missed opportunity in that whole supply chain arena. And out of those three things, we created the economics that made people want to build more. And we built over a thousand restaurants in the next
0: several years. It, it was a... a and then you get there in 2007... you're you're CEO number five in the previous seven years. And now there's a lot of sort of pressure on you to turn this around and people want quick results. And one of the from what I read, one of the early things you did was to um, really convince the franchise owners to contribute a percentage of their money to pay for uh, ads, national ads, and that Popeyes would would throw in a lot of money and you would do national ads on cable television. First of all, I'm just, I was shocked to find out that in in 2007, 2008, there was no national advertising for Popeyes?
1: No, uh, and it's fairly normal in a restaurant's development that there's a tipping point you reach where suddenly national television is far more cost effective than local. And we had reached that tipping point a few years back, but had not acted on it. There hmm. was a lot of distrust between the franchisor and the franchisee. So we started rebuilding trust. And one of the ways we did that was making that decision together. We brought in a third party expert to show us the facts. And then my team made this brave proposal. Why don't we start with three national flights of television to prove that it works? And the franchisees said, well, give us some time to talk. And when they invited us back in the room, they said, well, if you want to be brave, why don't you kick in some money and we'll do five flights? Their proposal was far braver than our proposal. And they asked us to put skin in the game. And that's what we did. And oh, my goodness, I'm so glad we went in it locked arms, because we launched that campaign in the fall of 08, when the wheels came off the economy. And had we not built that plan together, there's no way we would have seen it through under the pressure of the crash of 08. Our franchisees did not flinch in the fall of 08, even though it was not going well at all. We stuck with that media commitment for 18 months, and we came out a market share winner on the other side of the economic collapse.
0: Now, you know, Popeye's is, seems like it's everywhere, and it's a huge – it just, like, grew in leaps and bounds. Um, but initially, I mean, when you started that national ad campaign, um, it was not successful. It didn't move – really move the needle. And um, and I guess you kind of came out and you said, hey, I'm sorry. This didn't work.
1: We were very honest with ourselves about the facts. The items we chose to feature in the first ads didn't resonate. And we didn't have our spokesperson yet, who we discovered uh, the following spring, and we named her Annie. She spoke with such credibility about the uh, what was unique about our brand. She told stories beautifully. And we married Annie with better product innovation and better margins. And that's when the magic started to happen. And that campaign continued while it's still on air today.
0: Um, I want to ask you about Annie because there was some as you know, around Annie. There were some some people, critics, who said, hey, you know, Annie makes me uncomfortable. It's, it, it sort of feels like, you know, a mammy or an Aunt Jemima kind of um, having an African-American woman um, representing the brand. When you heard that criticism, what did you think? I mean, did you think, gosh, should just never thought about that before?
1: Well, of course, we wanted to be sensitive in how we uh, brought forward our spokesperson for the brand. So what we focused on was, did she resonate with our customer? Mm -hmm. And our customer was... uh, was 40% African-American nationwide. Um, Mm -hmm. And we spent lots of time with our customer and asked our customers to let us know what stories they want to be told. And if you look very carefully about the stories we told through Annie, they were all about the unique food characteristics of this region of the country called Louisiana. She just really drew you into the brand and the product stories we had to offer in the way she did her job.
0: I know that you left the company in 2017. You stepped down after 10 years um, running that company. You led the company through 10 straight years of growth. I think there are 2,500 or more Popeye's restaurants around the world. I mean, you had incredible success there, right? Like you were you're sort of the poster child for a turnaround leader. There's tons of articles about how you were kicked out of KFC and then you turned Popeyes around, this incredible triumph. But you, but I read a quote of yours where you basically said, look, the thing that I didn't fully achieve was getting the trust from the franchisees, that I'd, the full trust that I'd hoped to have gotten. You, you turned the company around. Why wasn't that relationship fully mended?
1: The subtitle
0: of that quote was, trust with
1: franchisees is not permanent. Mm. You have to earn it every day. And... That does get frustrating to the leader, sure, um, because you th- you think you should earn trust and it should stick, but the reality is this is an economic relationship, and so trust was good when sales and profits were good, and trust evaporated quickly when they weren't, and that's just the way it works. So I, I think that's the color story behind that quote. I look back on that time and say, uh, I'm confident we achieved the highest level of trust I've ever observed between franchisors and franchisees. But we
0: still had a job to do of earning it every day. You are now retired. I know you, you still serve on some boards, including on, on Chick-fil-A's board. We're talking right now in the middle of the greatest global health and possibly economic crisis, um, certainly health crisis that anyone has experienced in living memory, this is a huge test. I mean, whether it's for Popeyes or Chick-fil-A or KFC or any of the Domino's, any of the brands you've been associated with Nabisco, um, this is a huge test for all of these brands. I mean, God, imagine being the CEO of Popeyes right now, right? I mean, what do you have to lay off thousands of employees or of KFC. If you were running Popeyes right now, can you imagine what you would... How would you even begin to kind of navigate this this crisis?
1: Well, you know, I'm privileged to sit on three boards and I'm watching really good leadership teams tackle these decisions right now live. And, and so I, I think the current stories are the most relevant here. The trait that I most admire in leaders I'm observing right now is those that are willing to say, I've never seen this before. And my first step is to proactively seek advice and counsel from other wise leaders, other trusted advisors. They are not saying, I am the savior. I know all the answers. That is exactly wrong. The fastest way to move accurately in a crisis is to take Many inputs fast and sort out wisdom from those many inputs. So, very first COVID call I was on, a young leader asked his board to bring together you know, all the years of their career wisdom. We walked him through 9-11. We walked him through 2008. We went back to World War two. We talked about the 1929 depression. Uh, we talked about the Spanish flu. We told hmm. this young leader about things they'd never heard about, read about, or been a part of the decision-making. And I really believe that that leader took in tremendous wisdom fast by asking those questions, was open to receiving that counsel, and as a result, garnered lots of lessons of history. You know, history really does repeat itself. And I think the
0: listener and the learner is the best leader for this time. Cheryl, when you think about leadership in your own journey, do you think that, that at least from your perspective, you were kind of born to to be a leader, that you had those skills from an early age, or that you really had to learn how to lead
1: I think I, in many ways, was prepared to be a leader by my parents and my education. So I think there's a a preparation and an environment that you come from that can uh, prepare you well for leadership. And I certainly had that opportunity. I do think there's some natural gifts that are imbued in leaders. And then you marry that with the experience of my career and the mentoring that I received from many other great leaders. It's a total puzzle piece right it's a total puzzle of those things coming together to prepare me for a time and then also to prepare me not to think I'm the answer to all leadership solutions you know I I think leaders also need to be able to say no I'm not the right leader for this particular company Mm -hmm. or this particular time so I I never
0: want to lose sight of that that's Cheryl Batchelder She's the former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. In addition to now serving on the board of Chick-fil-A, Cheryl also serves on the board of U.S. Foods and Pier 1 Imports. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top
2: from Luminary and Built-It Productions. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today.
0: Selling a little or a lot?